Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Dua Lipa. I'm here to tell you about my brand new podcast, Dua Lipa at Your Service. I'll be sitting down with the world's most inspiring minds to uncover what makes them tick and what they've learned from the obstacles life has thrown at them, including Sir Elton John. After a lot of upsets, a lot of disappointments, a lot of betrayals, it's turned out to be the most wonderful life right now that I could have ever imagined. Listen to Dua Lipa at Your Service on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Did you know that on the day Dr. King was shot, the all-black security detail normally assigned to him was called off? They're the ones who would not allow him to stay at any hotel with balconies. This is the MLK Tapes. The first episodes are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am Ben Silverman, executive producer of The Office. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Office Deep Dive. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. Today, I am bringing you someone truly special. And I mean special in the best of ways, Ben Silverman. He is the person who discovered 
the British version of the show, he approached Ricky Gervais and Stephen Merchant about bringing the show to the United States. He eventually partnered with Greg Daniels, who he chose to adapt it. So Ben's role was crucial. More importantly, I think, he appeared in season nine as Jim's athlete co-worker Isaac. So, I mean, there was that too. Um, all joking aside, Ben brings incredible insights into the business side of things, the biz, if you will. And he has amazing stories about the fights that were going on with the network behind the scenes while the rest of us were just acting like idiots on set. Anyhow, Ben has become such a dear friend to me. And even after all of these years, I still learn so much every time I talk to him. I am sure that you will as well. So here he is, Ben Silverman. Bubble and squeak, I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every morning left over from the night before. Hey, buddy. Hey. <clears throat> I don't sound very good, John. I think you sound really sexy. Yeah. Oh, God, that. listen to you. How are you? I'm good. Great to see you. Let me get How's your locks? You just get a little locks. You want some onion? No, I'm good. I can. I'm, I'm practically shirt. tasting it over here. Oh, I feel a little much, right? <laughs> and if you want to use the, I'll take one more bite and then we'll start. Your volume's on the left. Is everyone ready for us in the back? Yeah, I'm the only reason we haven't already begun the interview in a casual fashion is because you were eating a bagel. Thank you for that. <laughs> All right, I'm about to start. Let me chew it out. I mean. It was fun to go back because as well as we know each other, there's so much of your like pre-me history. Like I th I think that your life didn't start until you met me, but you actually did things before, you know, before I came into your life. So you were the youngest division head in charge of international packaging at William Morris in 95. That makes you like, what, 12 years old at the time? I was 25 years old. Okay. And I got named into that position at around 27 or 28 and was in London working for William Morris four years okay. from 95 to 99. I left there in 99 to go to New York. Okay. So then you're in New York. How did you discover the UK version of The Office? I was at my friend Henrietta Conrad's house. I was not an agent. I had left being an agent where I had found everything from who wants to be a millionaire to cracker, queer as folk, and had translated them into America as the um, packaging agent. And I left backed by Barry Diller to start my own company called Reveille. And I had just begun Reveille and went over to London for a work trip and was staying at my friend Henrietta Conrad's house. And we were watching television and I was literally, I think, flipping the channels and I came on to the office. This is episode one or two okay. of the UK season one office. Wow. And I was watching it first 
wondering if it was for comedy or for real, then quickly recognized what it was doing. Single camera, no laugh track, faux documentary with people who felt real. And I kept watching and started laughing. And it's really hard to make me laugh. And I was falling in love with the show right in that moment. And then I started thinking about it the next day in the morning. And I asked Henrietta if she knew Ricky Gervais. And she said no, but her friend Dan Mazur did. And we organized and had dinner with Dan that night. Wait, so 24 hours after you after you see it for the first time on television, you're having dinner with someone who could get you to Ricky? Yes. Wow. And additionally, I also wanted to be with Dan. I mean, Dan was Sasha Baron Cohen's partner. Right. And the Ali G was on television. Was Ali G was on here then? No. Okay. In the UK. Okay. But so I'm with Dan Mazer. Yep. Dan is lovely, brilliant in and of his own right. And I start peppering him questions about the office. And he gives me Ricky's cell phone number. And so the next day, I call Ricky around 11 o'clock in the morning and introduce myself on the phone and say, I'd love to meet you. Are you in town? He goes, actually, yes. Come meet me in Soho at the Starbucks this afternoon. And I coordinate a meeting and I spend an hour with Ricky talking about the office. And very quickly, we got along because we both love television. And he truly was making me laugh, even in those moments <laughs> right. over, over the coffee at the Starbucks. And so he clearly had chosen the, the location, though, of this Starbucks because he then says to me, oh, good news, my agent is right around the corner. Let's go meet with him. So it was almost like he met me, confirmed I was okay. Right. The conversation was interesting. And then we walked over and met with Duncan Hayes, his agent. And then Duncan and I began a three-month process to secure the rights. And it wasn't until Duncan helped me unlock it all that I realized both the BBC and Ricky controlled the rights. I needed Ricky and Stephen Merchant to actually get it done and agitate to get it done. Otherwise, it was never going to get done. Got it. So you, you deal with the BBC and you deal with Ricky and Stephen. You have this partnership in place. And where do you go into the United States? I immediately start making phone calls and saying, are you aware of the show The Office? Do you know what it is? Do you think it would interest you? And this is probably now a month after or so. Right. And the show has started to gain buzz. It's aired its cycle in the UK, its initial six episodes. And so it has an awareness now. It's a thing. Right. Not a big thing, but to anyone in England, it's it, in the television industry, you're aware. So I'm, I'm back at the States reaching out to people. One of the incredible things about Hollywood, which was a huge advantage for me to do well, was that people in Hollywood are pretty insular and don't like to travel. They think you need a passport to get from 
Burbank to Beverly Hills. <laughs> that is travel. And so many people at this time in American television had no clue or connection about anything beyond LA. Right. And only one exec at the time knew what I was talking about was a guy named Nick Grad who worked at FX. And he knew what the show was and he loved the show. Kevin Riley was running FX at the time. I had gone to Les Moonves. He passed. I went to Gail Berman. She passed immediately, didn't get it. HBO said, we'll never do a remake. They clearly have altered that thinking. But at the time, they were like, we won't do a format. And Showtime wasn't doing shows like this. Right. I didn't go to ABC because I just knew it wasn't ABC. Right. And I was starting to tease NBC with it. And Kevin then got named the head of NBC. And I bring it up to him and I say, would you want to do it here? And Kevin says, absolutely. Little did he know he was actually my only buyer. <laughs> so <laughs> by that time, he was the only one. Right. Who wanted everyone else all had of television. Everyone else had passed. Now, are you... And Kevin's like, let's do it. Like, let's, let's make it. You know, I'll give you a pilot commitment. And then Kevin's boss, though, who was very involved in his life, Jeff Zucker, didn't really like it that much because it was his single camera, no laugh, <laughs> laugh track, track phone right. documentary. I got it. Like, it was a hard pill for them to swallow. But I was also like, they didn't want the game show back in primetime when I brought Millionaire. Right. Everyone thought that was cheesy daytime. I'm like, no, no. This will change TV. You know, you got to look at it from how to push the genre and push the envelope so that you can expand versus, you know, always play for defense. Right. I was like, this is another level. And this is potentially transformative of television. And with that can come great, great reward. You saw that at the time, that it could be transformative. Yes. You know, you have those moments. At that moment, I don't know, like everything was possible. Like I really saw the transformation of television before it was happening. Wow. Okay. So you get a pilot commitment from Kevin at NBC. So now you have to put a creative team together. So where do you start looking at that moment? So William Morris represented the BBC because I had signed the BBC to William Morris. Of course you had. When I was there. Yes, of course. As an agent before I became a producer. And I had done the deal with them. So they were part of the package, so to speak. But they didn't really have many good writers for the show at the, at the time. Ari Emanuel had the good writers. Okay. So I called him up and I said, Ari, I have the office. It's incredible. I will only meet with your guys, but will you set me up with your best guys? I have to organize for Ricky and Steven some meetings for them to help determine who we're all going to partner with and choose. And Ari was like, absolutely, let's do it, you know? And he set me up with a number of meetings and I immediately connected with Greg. You know, I just felt his genius and his thoughtfulness and real rigorous approach. And he also was so anxious about doing it. 
he kept saying to me, well, people love the British one. You know, uh, well, I can't make it better. I, you know, I'm, I don't want to be compared to it. And I had done a show, just had aired while I was working on this, called Coupling, which was an adaptation of a British show, much more in the kind of Friends vernacular. It was almost as if Friends had been adapted. Friends adapted to the UK. Now you're adapting, re-adapting it back. back. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And that show had been perceived really poorly in America. And Greg was worried that was going to happen. Right. And all the comparisons. So the halo of, of Coupling's failure was impinging his ability to kind of wrap his arms around the office. And the preconceived notion of everyone saying, why would you adapt that, it's hallowed ground, et et cetera, et cetera. So then I go to having to defend wanting to remake this great work. And I was explaining to Greg, because he was who I now really wanted to do it, and he suddenly was getting some cold feet based on the concern of adapting something so, so now like critically beloved. And I said, no one in America has seen this one. It's too dark, too narrow, and not going to play to a wide American audience unless we do a more optimistic adaptation informed by your vision and your ownership of the world. And there are millions of great books that are adapted all the time. Do you want to adapt the worst piece of shit? Are you trying to adapt a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel? And the correlation between a Da Vinci Code and a Da Vinci Code is much higher than not, you know. And so having to, like, explain the history of expanding IP that was successful was rather frustrating. And I kind of was thrown by it. Today, now everyone, if something's great, they want to remake it, you know. Right. It's totally different. So I go through all this work. And not only that, I... Then I have Ricky and Steven come over to LA to my office on the Universal lot at okay. the time in our little bungalows. And I have them in the office and we're going through the meetings. And at the end, they, they're like, yes, you know, uh, Greg Daniels is great. And then from there, I then have to get NBC to sign off. And Kevin says, has Greg done any live action stuff you know he's great in animation but who else you got you right, know? and right and i'm kind of like well he's who we got he's really good and ricky and steven like him and so kevin said okay let's meet and talk and immediately understood and connected with greg on him adapting it so, and then within that meeting even it immediately turns to casting because that is such a key sitting across from the beloved Kevin. Um, that is such a key to the show's architecture, which also, I mean, telling the story just reminds you how many millions of elements have to come together to create anything meaningful or successful. Right. So who, who, who's discussed in that meeting? Me, right? It's all about Brian Baumgartner. Okay. No, all right. Um, perfect. No. So in, in the, meeting, we're just talking about archetypes and whether we cast famous people or unknowns to play with the faux documentary. Did you have an opinion about keeping that? Keeping the integrity. I just wanted it right, but 
but I knew that the characters and who we cast had to be real and not too pretty. And that was another leap of faith from the broadcast network. Because everything at the time was friends, right? Everybody looked a certain way. It was not just friends. It was friends in Baywatch. Baywatch. I mean, it was like, it was friends and it was friends in bathing suits. You know, <laughs> right. That was like, that was the landscape of, of TV in that moment. And heading on a downward spiral of, <laughs> of beauty and superficiality in that time. Right. And so talking about those actors, we immediately brought on Allison Jones to be our casting partner. We loved what she had done, and Judd Apatow and his world and model was kind of the one other framework we were looking at as we were building out the show. And the actors he was casting and the stories he was writing and the comedy he was creating had a similar energy and feel and a sense of discovery. The other thing that we talked about with Kevin and that Greg agreed with me on is one of the things that television used to do incredibly well and still does do, but less people give it the opportunity to, is create stars. It's a place you have someone in your living room or in your bedroom and you're watching and connecting with them every week and you can fall in love with them and in a way you want to have discovered them. It's not just a movie mo- idol right. coming That's- into your kitchen. There's like this sense of ownership. I see it when I walk around with you, obviously your characters, the love Brian, but you know the way people treat a television star who's kind of grown up with them is so familial Totally. And natural. So that was part of what also was the pitch to the office. Like, we can create those stars here. Right. Because it is it is different than, you know, than film stars because people are watching you in their bedrooms. They're watching you. They're not 25 feet high. Yeah, Yeah. they're not 25 feet high on a huge billboard. Absolutely. Um, What do you remember about the casting process? so, So we brought on Allison Jones and we opened up in our bungalow. We turned our conference room into a casting room and we began that process. Our immediate shortlist for the actor led and lobbied by him was Bob Odenkirk to play the Michael Scott character. And we were into him for it. It was a real thing, but we weren't fully there. And then we started casting and we we started collecting talent. Krasinski, we found it on a tape out of New York. Right. I think he had literally just graduated Brown. <laughs> and characters like yours and your arrival into the show and Phyllis and right. Leslie and, you know, all these wonderful character actors, Craig Robinson, you know, just all these brilliant people. And obviously there's Jenna Fisher. Jenna had such a accessible sweetness and sadness to her. And I think of it, I mean, I don't know how old she was at the time or John, but they felt like children. You know, they felt like kids. I was a kid, but they were younger than me. I mean, I was only 30 at the time. Right. And they must have been 20, you know? So it was (laughs) like really, you really felt all this innocence and warmth and life coming through them and then obviously we all grew up together right okay so we we still don't have michael we still don't have michael scott i am panicking and i get a call 
from Stacy Snyder, who was head of Universal Pictures at the time. And Stacy calls me up on the lot and says, Ben, I love The Office. And she always would talk to me about it. It's so brilliant. It's so awesome. And she said that she absolutely loved it. And she had an idea for me. What about Steve Carell for the lead? And she said, have you seen Bruce Almighty? Watch him be the anchorman and do this 15-minute thing during the show. It is the most brilliant comedic tour de force I've seen. And we're developing a movie for him, 40-year-old virgin. And I think he's going to be a major star. I had seen Bruce Almighty. It was great. I knew exactly what she was talking about. So... I start to educate Greg, and Greg goes, yes, I know Steve Carell. He's on TV. He's got, he's got a series, Come to Papa, which he was like the fourth lead of a short-lived NBC sitcom. And I call Kevin Riley, and I'm like, you've got this guy in your show, but he has to be our guy. And he goes, you didn't hear it from me, but I don't think Come to Papa will come back. But I can't tell anyone. So he told you that at the time. Yeah, he basically let me know, but no one else kind of knew. It was only like Kevin and I who knew. <laughs> and it was very stressful. Unbelievable. So how did you decide on Ken Quapas? So Ken, I forget who recommended him to us, but he had done- The Bernie Mac show. The Bernie Mac show. And, Malcolm in the Middle. He had a- Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. 
You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Good reputation. And Malcolm in the Middle had a lot of the energy stylistically we were going for. But I still was worried that we didn't have enough of the reality show architecture in how we were going to produce it. And so I introduced Greg to Randall Einhorn. Because Randall, he had come out of Mark Burnett's camp and I had hired him for other shows or worked with him on on other reality shows. And I knew we needed somebody from that world stylistically to shoot in that way, but also so that we wouldn't set everything up as slowly as traditional scripted comedy was produced. And Randall ended up staying with us. You know, yeah, for five years. Five years. Yeah. But he helped forge our style and it was an essential element. So putting together Greg Daniels, Ken Quaffis, Randall Einhorn, getting that cast together. And now we got to shoot a pilot. It's a hard time for hiring. So you need a hiring partner built for hard times. That's Indeed. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Because Indeed is the hiring partner where you can attract, interview, and hire 
all in one place. And Indeed is the only job site where you're guaranteed to find quality applications that meet your must-have requirements or else you don't pay. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites hoping to find candidates with the right skills, you need one hiring partner that can help you do it all. Indeed partners with you on every step of the hiring process. Find great talent through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, as soon as you sponsor a post, you get a short list of quality candidates with resumes on Indeed that match your job description, and you can invite them to apply right away. Plus, you only pay for quality applications that meet your must-have requirements. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring right now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive. Offer valid through March 31st. Go to Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive to claim your $75 credit before March 31st. Indeed.com slash Office Deep Dive. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, Dana Goodyear here. Have you ever wondered how a true crime podcast like Lost Hills gets made? How we unearth secrets and tease out the truth? And deal with complicated characters while tackling sensitive subjects like violence, trauma, and deception? Now's your chance to find out. Join me and Jake Halpern, host of Pushkin's Deep Cover podcast, on March 16th for a digital conversation on true crime storytelling. Get your tickets now at momenthouse.com slash DCLH. That's M-O-M-E-N-T house dot com slash D-C-L-H. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. How much of the pilot were you around? I was around for the whole pilot. Right. What do you any anything specifically you remember about the shooting of that once the team was assembled? I remember finding elements of it really funny and believing wholeheartedly in the cast. I think the storyline we chose ended up being not necessarily the best one to set it up. All I remember vis-a-vis the decision to go with the underlying pilot script is we had spent so much time with Ricky and Steven and had studied with them in the UK at the Groucho Club for two days because I remember us going over and and spending time with them as they downloaded us about all things British office. We not only fell in love with them, we fell in love with the British show. So I think we thought, it's brilliant. Let's stick with that brilliance. And that was our initial feeling was to respect the underlying almost too much and not allow our ability to breathe the air into it we needed to do for the American adaptation. Maybe, but I think ultimately every pilot has its problems, right? Because you're trying to set up so much. But what that pilot did was set up 
that a documentary crew is coming in to film the employees at this paper company. And ultimately, in order to start there and to end where we did with the documentary coming out and everybody seeing themselves on camera, having been followed for nine years, it had to start there. Now, how it was written or if it, you know, directly translated from from the British version, I don't know. But don't you think that's important? I like a setup. I think cinematically, most movies, you get the build to get to the finale. In television, there's always a debate. Do you enter a series mid-swing or do you start it off with a Inception story? And so I, I agree with you in that setup, but I feel like we could have woven in a little bit more of what is specific to Scranton and America and to those characters. You end up discovering what the actors enjoy, play to, and become as you know them over nine years and 200 plus episodes. And so the writing becomes easier and better and the performances become more in tune and character-based. And that takes time. It's part of what's great about the new wave of television is these straight-to-series and putting them all out so that they have a chance to breathe and be discovered. At that time, you didn't have that luxury. Right. This was a day and time when the heads of the networks read the ratings at like four in the morning of what happened the night before. Right. And I had a phone number in my yeah. phone as an actor, and I would give the weekly reports on Friday morning at like 8 a.m. I would be in the makeup trailer going, okay, 4.7 last night, guys, and that puts us blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That process and those reactive programming decisions were definitely fear-invoking. And then we launched the show when we finally got a series picked up off the pilot. It was for five more episodes. It's crazy. What We got a six-episode run. That didn't happen. That is total... We're only doing this because you're torturing us to do it. That is not... We, <laughs> we wholeheartedly believe in your show. But they then put us on after the... Apprentice, which was very strange at the time. We aired later than normal because they thought The Apprentice set in a workplace environment was like the right match for the show. Did you agree? I like that The Apprentice had a larger circulation of audience and The Apprentice actually, like all of NBC shows, had a slightly higher concentration of urban dwelling fans. It was always the history of NBC versus like the history of CBS, which had been traditionally a little more rural, which is probably why you got Dukes of Hazard on one and Hell Street Blues on the other, which only reinforced it. But I kind of thought The Apprentice maybe was a good lead-in because there wasn't a lot else on the network to draw from. So we launched out of that and we did well in the beginning, but then we started to go down every week. Right. For the whole six-episode run. Okay. So going back a little bit, but we shoot the pilot. You know, what was going on behind the scenes from your perspective in dealing with the network to try to get a pickup for the show? Well, I, I was doing everything I could to get it picked up, and I was begging, borrowing, and stealing, and literally walking the hallways of NBC, cajoling any executive there to support the show. And I'm getting resistance. I'm getting, it's a small show. It's a quirky show. It tested horribly. 
And I'm able to get some creative help. I work with a guy named Bill Carter, who's at the New York Times. And Bill and I had grown to know each other. And he had featured me in a couple other spots. And he was a fan of The Office and was aware very early on that I was working on it. And I was personally excited about it. And I knew he liked it. And so he became somebody inside the press corps who was willing to champion it. And that became a, a valuable asset for us as we went about trying to get this quirky comedy, this unique piece picked up. So how did you find out that NBC was going to order more shows? So I get uh, an invitation from my friend David Benioff, the co-creator of Game of Thrones, right. with George Martin and Dan Weiss. And he has written Troy, the Brad Pitt starring film, Eric Bana, Brad Pitt. Right. And Troy is going to premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. And would I want to be his guest? Because his wife, now uh, Amanda Pete, girlfriend, I believe at the time, maybe, yeah, girlfriend at the time, is unable to attend with him. And I immediately say, of course, and am so excited about it. And then he adds another element, which is, and then from there, we're going to go to the premiere in Tokyo, where I've never been. After we pick up Brad Pitt in Amsterdam, where he's shooting one of the first Oceans Jeez. movies. So we're on this giant plane with Eric Bana and Brad Pitt and Wolfgang Peterson. And Dave and I are just like watching Brad sleep. Like we're not even, you know, we're like, <laughs> just like, oh, look at him breathe. You know, we're, we're totally movie star stupefied. And I remember we land in Siberia. You cannot make this up. Land in Siberia. I remember getting off the plane and. Just a layover. Uh, to f get gas. Right. Because it's such a long trip from Amsterdam to Tokyo. Okay. And as. We get off. I'm literally looking at a guy with a Kalashnikov and a and a fur hat and a red star on it in in Mother Siberia. And my phone works, and I'm checking in, and I'm looking down, and I have like a bazillion messages. And I reach them, and they say, "We will pick up the show, but we're only picking up five more." Wow! And we got our five episode pickup on top of the one episode we'd already made for you know. Probably the lowest price in the hist in that time in the history of you know modern TV. That's unbelievable. <clears throat> One other thing, you spoke earlier about you felt the show was transformative. You know, to share with you my experience of shooting the second episode we ever did, Diversity Day, and being in that room and saying, "If America gives this show a chance, we could do something really special." Yeah, no, we, you're absolutely right. And Diversity Day is still one of my favorite episodes of TV, let alone The Office, and is so funny and dangerous and different and real and in a non-PC way. It was just laugh out loud funny. It was undeniable. Exactly. And that's you know, all of the sort of issue episodes where we tackle healthcare in a culture of no gay marriage and don't ask, don't tell. We do gay witch hunt. Like, I, I'm just so incredibly proud of that legacy for our show. Oh, absolutely. And the smartest guy in the office ran the warehouse. And I always loved that dynamic of Daryl and Michael 
because you knew Daryl should be running that office if he wanted to. And it was so important to me to have that in the show because that's America. And I feel like the show through comedy really pushed all of that around. And I have cared super deeply about all of that my entire life as the son of a gay woman and grandson of a civil rights activist and union organizer, specifically the Pullman Porters Union, A. Philip Randolph. And my grandfather, Max Delson, built up the Pullman Porters Union, the, the first black labor union in, in America. And we looked at Archie Bunker as the parallel and were informed by Archie Bunker's bad behavior in all of the family and what it did to open up doors for people like George Jefferson in television land and that meathead relationship and everything that was within that, we were now doing in the workplace. That's amazing. So we've talked about the pilot. We finished season one. We finished a whopping six episodes. And then we wait for the upfront. What did you think about our chances to be picked up? I was incredibly hopeful and obviously passionate about the prospects of the show. Right. But it was still not by any means a sure thing. And if anything, there was a sense among the senior management and a lot of the more traditionalists. Is that Jeff Zucker? No, but just in general, right. like it's it it was more institutional rejection, like because there were people in the marketing department, the promo department, like they 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 didn't understand it. How do we market it? How do we promo it? How do we sell it? Is a is it a documentary? Is it a reality show? And no one was a star. There was no star at that point. So there were a lot of challenges to its second season happening. And were you having to fight? Like, were you going into NBC and, and fighting to get that second season? Or were, was it more you were just waiting to see what happened? There was a beyond fight. And I, I do remember going into Jeff's office with the Day brothers, who were going to be making the 9-11 documentary. And I used that meeting to also... <laughs> push for the office. And I remember, and the Nardes can tell you, we had a, a good meeting. And then I brought up that they had to pick up the show. Like, it had to happen. It was too good. They Please pick up the second season. You have to do this. And from that, I was thrown out of his office. But I remember being called. And I looked down on my phone, and I get a phone call, and it says, we will pick up not 22 episodes for next season. We're only picking up six. And you have to make it for half the price. And I needed everyone to take less money on these episodes. And so I remember my first call was to Ricky and Steven because I, I thought they would say, fuck you. Like I, you know, we like, but I was like, we have a chance to do this. And everyone said yes. Wow. Now, when did you make the deal with Apple to get that show on iTunes. The Apple deal was made by NBC right at the beginning of Apple with Eddie 
Q and the team at Apple, and they came to us about it. And we just said, yes, please. What we didn't expect would be that Apple would then educate a whole new audience, but also market to us. They got behind the show. They kind of treated it as their own. And they also then began rolling out later their own stores. And we were the poster set. It, for music, it was U2. And for entertainment and video, it was The Office. I remember walking into Apple stores and seeing The Office on billboards before, really, we were a big hit and, and going like, wow, this is awesome. Apple treated us better than our network. And <laughs> maybe better than we deserved at that moment, but they saw something in the show too. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave. And then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math 
the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. On Purpose's mission is to create impactful conversations to help you become happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. You'll be laughing, crying, and have so many impactful takeaways after this interview. I had this, like, you know, homie lover friend for a long time. He's very disrespectful to me, very kind of messed up to me. But in my mind, we could get married. We had the most beautiful babies. He handsome. I'm pretty. Like, it would be so cool. He's smart and intellectual. I'm kind of smart, I think. Like, it would be fun. We have the best conversations. Like, we have fun. But then he would treat me like crap. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Apple totally embraced the show, and they loved it. And Eddie Q loved the show. You know, they actually liked the show. And we did a trade-out with Apple. We did a whole episode, the Christmas episode, which is one of the great episodes of The Office, and one of my favorite, favorite episodes. And the trading of the iPod, it was incredible. And that was a huge thing for them. And they didn't pay for it, but it was like the connectivity. And then they ended up giving us all the computers and kind of investing in the show as well as an advertiser and supporter. And then they did the iTunes thing. So they were always leaning in. And so it really had that fun give and take. Right. So then the end um, of season two, moving into season three, we're nominated for a slew of Emmys and win the best comedy Emmy. What, what, did that, what did that mean for you and your feelings about what the show could be from the, from the beginning? It was the greatest. It truly was. And the Emmys at that time were even bigger than they are now. And it was just an amazing, amazing night. It was a celebration for all of us and everyone involved. We were so joyous. We were so young. We were so happy, and it was a dream come true on every level. I remember holding that trophy on that stage, and I don't think I let go of it for the entire night. And now I would think, oh, it's not, it's so material in a way, but at the time, it just was so, we made it. Like, mom, we made it. Yeah, that's great. The business model of TV, you talked about because you believed in the show, doing the show for less and trying to find a way. How did that change? How, how did the business change once the show became successful? It became a darling of the network and important. And through that, not beyond important, it was still not at the level of other hits in the history of broadcast comedy. Its ratings were good, but they it wasn't the number one show on TV ever. But there was really nothing they wouldn't do to support it. And Universal also had, was building a relationship on the movie side with Krell and other actors in the series. And they worked with us to accommodate everyone's schedules, their desires to make movies, and how that would impact budget and where they would find the money for the show. But the show in and of itself never spiraled 
out of control cost-wise. It was a very contained show in its invention. We were never going to blow up a building. What we did do is we opened up our storytelling and we started to do, we started to exit the building a lot more. Right. What was the logic behind doing the hour-long episodes? Why were we doing those? Well, the show had a cinematic storytelling feel, if not look, which was based on, you know, a real narrative satisfaction in every episode. And within that, we could use more time to tell more story. And we also had so many characters who could be utilized across that length of time. But I think the main reason was we were the number one show on the network. And if they could add 19 hours of it, they would have had 19 hours of it, let alone one hour of it. (laughs) And clearly the show uniquely was both drama and comedy. It was part soap opera, you know, workplace soap opera with all these characters, part drama with the emotional depth, and then obvious hilarity and comedy. Look through your children's eyes to see the true magic of a forest. It's a storybook world for them. You look and see a tree. They see the wrinkled face of a wizard with arms outstretched to the sky. They see treasure and pebbles. They see a windy path that could lead to adventure. And they see you, their fearless guide through this fascinating world. Find a forest near you and start exploring at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the United States Forest Service and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Glory Adam, host of Well-Read Black Girl. Each week, I sit in close conversation with one of my favorite authors of color and share stories about how they found their voice, honed their craft, and navigated the publishing world and composed some of the most beautiful and meaningful words I've ever read. We journey together through the cultural moment where art, culture, and literature collide and pay homage to the women whose books we grew up reading. And of course... I check in with members of the Well-Read Black Girl Book Club. It's a literary kickback you never knew you needed. And you're all invited to join the club. So tell your friends to tell their friends so we can be friends who love books. Listen to Well-Read Black Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Hillary Clinton, and I'm excited to be back with a new season of You and Me Both. You know, when we started this podcast, we were going through some tough times, and let's face it, we still are. But I am a firm believer we're stronger together. So please join me for more conversations with people who will make you think, make you laugh, and help us find a path forward. Listen to You and Me Both on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So... In May of 2007, you're named co-chairman of NBC. Why, why did you take that job? I thought it would be a fantasy to run a network as it had been 25 years earlier when my mentor, Brandon Tartikoff, had had the job. And I really did see where the business was going and believe I knew how to 
turn this ship for the future because it was obvious to me that the future was coming hard and fast and technology was going to enable an absolute transformation of how people consume content. And I was eager to lead that transformation. I was rudely awakened to the reality that no one wanted to change the status quo because it had been working so well for so many of the people who were part of it. And there was real fear in the decisions I was making. What do you mean you'll go straight to series and an idea? How could you shoot something overseas? How could you do a game show here? How could you do shows that air multiple days in a row? What was particularly challenging was having to disconnect from The Office, my beloved show, and The Biggest Loser, my other creation on the network at the time, and not be able to connect in this as deeply as I wanted because of a perceived conflict of interest. And I kept saying those are the only reasons I got hired, along with <laughs> Ugly Betty and right. the tutors, and how I was able to bring them and, and grow the two biggest nights on the air by far were from the two projects that I had on the network. Right. Being chairman of NBC, was that a dream of yours from your childhood? Yeah, I always had wanted to run NBC. NBC specifically? Specifically. It was the network I had grown up watching. I loved Cheers, Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere. I loved the idea of 30 Rock. I didn't realize that I would have to basically just service the corporate part of it because that was the only way that we could keep it moving without real pressure. And it took me away from the part I love, which was the creative part. But we, I was still able to green light parks and recreation and community and all these wonderful shows and do as good a work as I could and break down walls, like make deals with Windows, with DirecTV and do the straight to series and bring in advertising, do everything needed to keep it profitable and running, but without the momentum of being able to choose all my own content because the strike happened so I couldn't get any development going, which was such a bummer because that's the only fun part of running that job. And so then you're in that job and not even able to do anything truly creatively led. Everything has to be kind of engineered. And so it takes a lot of the fun away. And all of that together, plus the entrenchment at the time of the rest of the system, I learned in that moment, it's not always best to be first at doing something. You might want to wait for someone else to do it. And then you can do it second and learn or have the constituents or the entrenched uh, be a little more tenderized for the moment. Right. Um, Parks and Rec, you greenlit in April 2009. Now, it was this show from Greg and Mike Schur was originally planned to be a spinoff, right? Yes, we were uh, talking about having Amy Poehler and potentially her husband at the time, Will Arnett, be seated into the show to do a family-like spinoff. And then Mike Schur came up with the dig out of that which was set in that world of small town politics. And I had made an overall deal with Amy Poehler, who I was pursuing to be part of the office originally, but then she leaned in and went into that and Greg helped realize it and partner with it with Mike. Got it. <clears throat> Were you concerned about Greg that he was going to be too split? Were you concerned about that? I felt like Greg had built a bench on the office that included people like Mike Schur who wanted to go create their own shows and to 
keep connected to that and at the time running the network to keep those talented people connected to the network, it was really good and valuable. And I wish we could have converted the office like Dick Wolf converted Law and Order and been the whole night of comedy because I do think the office is like a universe of characters and style choices that can map out many more narratives. Right. Did you have anything specifically to do with Jen Salata and Paul Lieberstein Paul, running Paul, it? Paul and Jen and everyone that we had hired, but Greg had then really nurtured and uh, mentored on the job, even though they were accomplished as they arrived, they were trained by Greg in Greg's methodology and process. And our editors, who were such an important part of that show, also brought a lot of dexterity and, you know, became directors of episodes and cameramen became directors and actors became directors and writers became actors. And so you had this great matrix of people who knew how to do each other's jobs and support each other. And to keep the talented people connected to you, you have to either promote them or give them more responsibility or they go do something else or maybe they'll go do something else with you if it makes sense. So that's all part of it. Right. Did you feel like anything changed uh, with Paul and Jen leading the show or did you feel like it kept operating You know, with Greg's Everything super- about the show changed when Steve Carell left the show. When Steve left. That was the seismic shift in its progression. And I think the early energy of the show was just so fresh and ridiculous that it has, to me, some of the highest comedic hurdles and and delivery on funny. Because then you learn to actually know these characters are going to go as far as they went in the beginning. Right. Um, And then it becomes more soap opera and familial, but something different. And I think Jen and Paul loved the characters and knew that. I feel like with um, Steve's departure, though, there was just less sun in the room. When did you find out he was leaving? I was shocked that they couldn't work it out. And when I heard the story of how the network went about its process with him after the fact, it made me so depressed how they had kind of blown something that they could have saved. And I think in that moment, also, Greg not being there to drive that also meant that we would lose Steve. Yeah. Um, Did you have any doubt that the show could go forward without him? I knew the show could continue. I think it didn't own its best stride and lost steam. But had we used it to force even further reinvention or different casting choices, I don't think we did anyone a favor by bringing in James Spader, neither James nor the show. Um, and he's so talented and clearly had the blacklist one second later. Right. But that feels custom made for him. You know, the way he played that character on our show didn't breathe as well and didn't work as well in our format. Right. What did getting to a hundred episodes signify to you? It was validating to reach that milestone. But when you're in youth, you don't think of things that way. It's interesting to reflect on that number today and appreciate it as an accomplishment. But I'm very much today and tomorrow. And so while I was in it, I wasn't thinking about 
its hundredth episode, I was thinking about its next, the next hundred more. You left NBC shortly after that in the summer of 2009. What was the context of you leaving? I just knew I didn't want to remain at NBC anymore. It wasn't my cup of tea, to use our, our Brit's uh, expression. I didn't enjoy being part of a organization that was just purely focused financially at at that time and needing to get so much money out of our part of the business to support other parts of the business, like GE Capital. We also, when I was running NBC, had come into the greatest recession of our lives. And that recession, you know, caused General Electric to panic and freeze and caused every advertiser to stop spending and caused us to not get to make as many episodes of shows and other projects at the time also. So I was starting to think, oh my goodness, how much is out of my control in this job at NBC with five zillion employees and General Electric and all of these elements attacking and driving me crazy on a daily basis. And then the top brass just wants you to you know, save as much money as possible. And the writers are striking and at war with you. And none of it is in your control or where your choice is. And so I knew I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I remember quitting and being just so excited to quit <laughs> and uh, and telling Jeff Zucker, I just don't, I have a stomach ache when I'm in here. I don't, I don't want to be here, you know? And, right. and I said, I'll help you manage it, but you know, I gotta, I gotta, I can't be here anymore. And I've delivered you a lot. Right. Um, season nine, did you think that it was time for the office to end? I felt like people were losing some steam and there was a little bit of the first time, a little friction. Now, was this season eight or season nine? Like the lead up. The lead up to season nine. And I think there was just like a collective kind of lack of focus. And so it all just kind of, it didn't, there's no friction point. It just kind of was starting to not have the momentum that it had uh, previously. And then the way to almost reignite that momentum was around its coming to an end. Right. And that was like a way to reinvent and relight it because it gave everybody purpose. Right. Well, my understanding, Greg essentially confirmed this, that the documentary is revealed and we see the characters responding to that, um, that from there, there was, there was no way to go back. Yes, we broke the wall and he had planned to break the wall and then he had planned to finally blow the wall up right, and pull back and that projection became the inevitable result. Right. Do you remember being on set the last day? I, I remember being on set at, at the end and just thinking, why wasn't I on set more? What an idiot to have not been here and present to have enjoyed this ride and instead to pursued unfulfilled dreams of network domination and ambition. I could have been here at part of the greatest comedy in history with the coolest people around. And I've, I'm like an absentee landlord coming to visit. What are you most proud of? I'm so proud of the show's natural diversity and its success with so many different groups and its ability to tell stories that kind of celebrated the true America, which is 
what we see in real workplaces, which is everyone represented. And I love that about the show, that it did it in a truthful, honest way through comedy. And that made me so happy about it. And I always return to the fact, as wistful as I am talking about the soap opera of the show, it was so fucking funny. The office is genuinely laugh out loud funny. And it is immediate, serious, high-pitched comedy. (laughs) It is a lot of people sitting on an airplane giggling at the same time watching their own monitors. Right. Why do you think? Why is the office right now, five years plus after we've shot our last shot, why is it the most watched show on television right now? I think that the office is so textured and deep, has so many characters who appeal to so many different people because those characters represent so many different people. And it literally had a larger ensemble. There were more actors and more characters for people to connect with. But it also meant there was more depth of story and more stories that could be told because you had a richer ensemble to service and who could service the show. And I think that people kind of, you know, understand that that world so well that it makes them really connect to it. And they're living it in their own way. And through this, they can find escape and comedy and joy. There's something anachronistic to a warmer time. And I miss that time. And it must be one of the reasons our show is so resonant with the new generation, because they are in search of this kind of family and this kind of warmth and truth in a world that's just filled with bad noise and bad news. But the main reason is because of its quality. And you have to have now seen it or watched or discovered it because someone is going to bring it up, mention it, wear a t-shirt, send you a gif, and you have to now be part of it. You can no longer hide. Well, everybody who worked on it owes you tremendous Thanks. You're the person responsible for bringing this to the United States. And basically everybody who was involved with it owes you so much for that. What are you thankful for? The office is the greatest gift. And I am so happy I was one of its principals and architects and got to work with such fine people, but got to connect with a permanent piece of culture. And I'm excited that I have something I can share with my son and daughter without even knowing where they end up. I know they're going to like that show. And it brings me great joy and brings me some calm to know that that has been entered into the book. Awesome. There you go. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Love you. Great work. God, you got me at the end. All right, bud. Love you so much. I love you too, bud. Thank you. There you have it. The man, the myth, the legend, Ben Silverman. Ben, what can I say? I appreciate you so much. I cannot even imagine how different my life would be if you had not taken that trip to London, 
flipped onto the office, and stalked Ricky Gervais to a Starbucks all those years ago. So, thank you. And speaking of all of those years ago, tomorrow is a very special anniversary for The Office. It's The Office's Sweet 16, yes, 16 glorious years since our very first episode premiere. So, as an anniversary gift to you, our listeners, we have, oh, we have a special episode with some exciting guests and much, much more. So come on back tomorrow and listen to our Sweet 16 anniversary episode. As always, thank you for joining me and have a great day. The Office Deep Dive is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Lang Lee. Our senior producer is Tessa Kramer. Our associate producer is Emily Carr. And our assistant editor is Diego Tapia. My main man in the booth is Alec Moore. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton. And the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky. Attention, we need everything you got fast. Waiting on reparations, we be the illest podcast. Tune in every Thursday, politics and wordplay. We fight for the people because they got us in the worst way. From the hill to Brazil, Bombay to Kanye. From the left enclave to what the neocons say. Every Thursday, cop the heady conversation. And, and break us off with some bread because we waiting, waiting on, on reparations. reparations. Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jake Halpern, host of Deep Cover. Our new season is about a lawyer who helped the mob run Chicago. He bribed judges and even helped a hitman walk free until one day when he started talking with the FBI and promised that he could take the mob down. I've spent the past year trying to figure out why he flipped and what he was really after. Listen to Deep Cover on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt depressed about work, only to have your dad be like, why are you so down? So you told him you hate your job, and he said, well, you better talk yourself out of it. And then you thought, hmm, I love to talk. I could host a podcast. And then you went to Spreaker from iHeart and started a podcast and got good at it, then monetized it, then quit your boring job, then told your dad, thanks for the advice. And he was like, well, that's not what I meant, and I don't understand what a podcast is, but you seem happy, so that's great, kiddo. You ever do that? Well, you could. At Spreaker.com. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R. Ask your dad. You actually don't. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics 
in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily Podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.